Hey, everyone. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And uh, how about we start today's show with a call to my new shrink? Hello? I have an appointment with Dr. Katz. Speaking. Dr. Katz. How are you? Well, not so good, which is why um, I'm seeing you today. Your name is Robert, right? <laughs> it is. Uh, have you looked at my file yet? You know, you're not going to believe this, but there was a fire here about three weeks ago, and the only thing destroyed was your file. Everything else is intact. Ah, uh, well, I guess that's what I deserve for confusing a comedian with a psychotherapist. He is the comedian Jonathan Katz, who played Dr. Katz, professional therapist, on the late great animated TV series of that name. It ran on Comedy Central in the mid through late 1990s. Each week, Dr. Katz counseled patients played by comedians, some of the best of our era, often before they got really famous. There was the young John Stewart, Louis C.K., Dave Chappelle, Sarah Silverman, Patton Oswalt, Wanda Sykes, Mark Marin, and I could go on. They all took a turn on the good doctor's couch, and I can only hope that it was as good for them as it was for those of us who dug the show. Dr. Katz premiered in 1995, 20 years ago, and has since become a cult classic. And now Jonathan and fellow cast members are observing the 20th anniversary with a live performance of Dr. Katz at this year's SF Sketchfest in San Francisco, which gave me the opportunity to get in touch with Jonathan and reminisce about the show and uh, to learn more about him and some of the things he's done in his long and varied performing career. I want to say to our audience, uh, by the way, that um, if they don't know you, Jonathan, the uh, New York Times summed you up this way. Mr. Katz is baldish and possesses a phlegmatic affect and a subtle wit. Oh, that's such bullshit. No one knows what phlegmatic means. <laughs> what does it mean? Uh, kind of slow. It's actually related to the word phlegm. Oh. You know, viscous and slow. Do you know what sardonic means? I, I never knew until I was at Whole Foods. And I overheard these two sardines. Jeez. I'm sorry, that's such a bad joke. <laughs> hey, Robert, just because I'm curious about recording. Yes. Uh, how are you recording this? By what? What's coming between the phone and... Are you recording on a computer or a recording device? Uh, actually, I have what's called a hybrid device, which is... Oh, my God. Love it. I know you're you're kind of an audio nerd. We could talk audio. Yeah. Um, so I have a hybrid device, and it's going into an old but very reliable uh, digital audio tape deck. Like a DAT machine? A DAT machine, a really oh, good no. one, studio quality. And that um, is recording on DAT, and that is also connected uh, via a digital SPDIF cable to my computer. So I'm also recording on my computer and looking at a Pro Tools session right in front of my face. Wow. That shows uh, what I'm recording, but it just gives me double coverage. So the, that tape is recording and the computer is recording. I'm a big believer in redundancy when it comes to recording. I heard you your interview on um, Mark Marin, uh, WTF, uh, that you and Tom Snyder did oh, a couple yeah. of years ago. Tom Snyder is your friend and co-creator, I guess, of, of the Dr. Katz series. Right. And you, you got into talking about audio tape, like half-inch, you know, quarter-inch. But, but the other thing is that Tom is from the future in a way. Because his name is encrypted in every Apple computer. Oh, really? Because he worked on the team that created the Apple. And he understands technology in a way that you and I never will. And um, I'm guessing you know more about it than I do. I know a few things. I mean, do you know how to program? Well, I've done some really uh, basic stuff. 
Well, I grew up in a home where my, my parents spoke MS-DAS as a first language. Um, speaking of your parents, they they were like, I've heard wait, you say they were... Time, you're not going to respond to that joke. <laughs> you're kidding me? That's like one of my best computer jokes. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh, Jonathan, you know, it's funny. I, I should be watching my laughter, right? You don't you don't like people to laugh too much at you, right? You, you like no, people... No, no. I, I, my feeling is I don't like them to laugh if they, unless they can't help it. Okay. Okay, so all of my laughter is for real. Uh, it's not fake to make you feel good. Right. Um, so, yeah, sorry about that. I just, you know, the MS-DOS, because you mentioned your parents, and I, I thought, oh, you know, that's, that's someplace we could go. Uh, you, I think you've said that they were both, like, bona fide communists. Is that true? Well, they were subpoenaed by the McCarthy hearings. They both had to testify and pleaded the fifth. Wow. But they were, you know, they were in the labor movement, because in those days... Communist is what we now call a liberal. Yeah, a liberal in those days was called a nice guy, a Roosevelt the guy. Yeah, world has, has <laughs> changed so dramatically in recent years. That your parents, uh, they were not blacklisted to the point of losing their jobs. Well, my father had to get out of the labor business, and my mom died when I was very young, and he started dating really rich women. A smart what? communist. Yeah, that kind of communist, yeah. His first wife after my mom died was the heiress to the Bloomingdale estate. Wow. Was there a huge change for you? Did you go from poverty to luxury? When I was a little kid, we were poor, but not, not dramatically poor. My mother, and you, this is all on Dr. Katz as well, oddly enough, my mother used to make a kind of lunch called clown. <laughs> I would just watch that episode. Yeah, with, with a piece of American cheese two peas for the eyes, like something for the nose. So she made being poor fun. She put a funny face on the scraps that she fed yeah. you. So my sister and I, we didn't really know we were poor uh, when we lived in Brooklyn. Was your dad or your mom, were they cut-ups? Were they funny people? Oh, well, my mother was pretty funny, but she was, a, a, you know, you don't like your own parents to make your friends laugh. Mm-hmm. My friends thought she was wonderful. Mm-hmm. My father's, I can tell you three of his best jokes, give you his comedy range. So, uh, Robert, did you hear about the fight at the bakery? No. Yeah, two rolls got fresh. <laughs> okay. That's one. Uh, Robert, if the rain keeps up all day, it won't come down. That's two. <laughs> Third one, which I forgot recently. Shit. Anyway, you get the idea. I do. If he saw other people laughing at me, he would chime in. With his jokes. No, he wouldn't laugh at my stuff unless he saw other people doing it. I see. He took the cue from them. Yeah. The only other time I've had that experience is performing in Toronto for a bunch of shrinks who would not laugh unless their colleagues laughed. They were afraid? Yeah. So was there a guy, was there a plant in the audience who got things rolling? No, they, would, they just, like, like you, they couldn't help it, and it was a great audience. They should have a sense of humor. Yeah. My father was a psychologist, and he was a joker, too. Uh, he was a he was a kind of one liner dude. Right. He loved just classic, corny humor, but he was pretty creative too. Uh, not that I want to hijack the interview by telling you my stories, but no, I I love hearing them. But he had a um he had a head injury, a very severe one, uh, about twenty years ago, and was in critical care and um, almost vegetative. And they had a very grim prognosis, which fortunately did not turn out to be true. But I walked into the room. Uh, the first time I saw him, attached to all these machines, and his eyes opened. 
there was a nurse nearby, and she didn't expect anything out of him, so she introduced herself. She said, hi, my name's Jane, and my dad, lying there in what was supposed to be a vegetative state, said, I'm Tarzan. My God, that's great. Yeah, so the thing that was still, like, awake in him, even in that, uh, you know, incredibly disabled condition, was the humor. That's what was there, you know? And how did he hurt his head? I'm glad you asked, Dr. Katz, because we could get this off our chest. Uh, um, I like the idea that you think we have one. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I I was referring to me in the plural, uh, which I do a lot because there's multiple me's. Uh, we could talk about that too. Well, he was Great name for a band. <laughs> Multiple muse. You can have it if you've retired uh, cats and his jammers, or cats and the jammers. Cats and jammers. Cats and jammers. We're semi-retired. <laughs> uh, so you asked. Uh, that's interesting that you asked. Um, he was on a shuttle bus on a university campus, and right. the bus had seemingly pulled to a stop. He started to jump off, and the bus started moving again. He slammed his head on the concrete. Oh, my God. Yeah, one of those completely capricious, you know, events that change lives, you know, can happen to anybody, anytime. Um, Let's talk about Dr. Katz just a bit more, because, I mean, this uh, series, which I I confess I I loved in its day, and uh, this interview has given me a chance to go back and refresh my memory. And uh, some of our audience, I'm sure, has never seen it, and some may have forgotten bits of it. So I thought I'd just... The premise is pretty easy to explain. Yeah, why don't you do that? Dr. Katz is about a psychiatrist, and all of his patients are comedians. They were, they were, you know, they were just people who in real life are comedians coming on and using their comedy. They would just talk to me as a patient. And, and the show failed when I took my role as a therapist too literally. It succeeded when I asked them just to do their act, and, and I would add my voice after the fact. <gasps> Uh, let's illustrate this yeah. inter- interchange. But I, I found um, a very first episode with Dom Irera. Right. Uh, you and Dom Irera, he's your patient. And he, he's on the couch. Of course, you're in the chair. You are Dr. Katz. He is Dom. And right. uh, let's hear just a little clip. Did your parents get along? My father, uh, my father, God bless him, never cheated on my mother. He used to cheat on me. He used to pick up other kids after school, take them to the zoo, take them to play ball. One day he came to me. He said, look, I got to level with you. I met another kid. And for the first time in my life, I feel like a real father. My mother stood right by me. She said, you're my son. You'll always be my son. You stay here as long as you have a job. This was the treatment I got as a child. Doc, you could give a little. I hurt inside. It's very, very hard. It's very hard. I'm sorry. I promised myself I wasn't going to cry today. I am so sorry. Just let it out, please. (laughs) Sometimes when I get like this, if, if and I, I don't mean to be rude or anything, I just want to lie you flat down on the ground and just flop down on top of you like a big pancake and just talk. What if we just did some, some um, breathing exercises? So that was a little clip from the very first episode of Dr. Katz, Professional Therapist from uh, 1995, featuring my guest today on the show, Jonathan Katz as Dr. Katz and uh, Dom Irera, the comedian, as the patient of the psychiatrist, Dr. Katz. And Jonathan, uh, tell us about that clip. I relied on for patients on, on favor some friends, and Dom was one of the first guys I asked because I don't think I know anybody funnier than him. So he came up from New York to, we were recording in, for the first two years in the kitchen of Tom Snyder in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We just put a bunch of blankets up on the wall and had some 
good mics, and he knew how to edit audio. And um, I pretended I was Dom's therapist. And because it was Dom, it was fun. But we discovered very quickly with other patients, <laughs> I'm using the word patients already, with other patients that um, it wasn't good for me to engage them in therapy because they would come down to my level of energy, and it got very sleepy. Phlegmatic. Yeah. Um, because, you know, my energy level is so, can be so low, and people just came down to my level. But as a therapist, I made one woman cry and one guy feel better. Comedians? Yeah. Can you name them? Um, I think so. I mean, Kathy Ladman's a wonderful comedian and a good friend who just, you know, I just pushed her a little too far about the kind of pain she was in. Ooh. That's so real. And the guy who felt better is Bob Balaban. He just walked out of there feeling better. Did he talk about personal stuff that wasn't part of his standard, some prepared act? He may have. I actually don't remember how his approach to therapy. Um, The best guys are the guys who really showed up prepared because I truly believe in improvisation as long as you plan very well. So, so Jonathan, you say that you started out, you know, very early on, like in the the bit with uh, Dom Irera that we just heard, sort of improvising and, and playing an actual therapist. Uh, but that didn't go so well. So, what did you do next? Right. And, then, and then soon we realized, and I think it was uh, Ray Romano was the guy who demonstrated how this worked because it was really an acting job being a patient of Dr. Katz. And what worked better than him in session with me was him doing material from his act. And then later on, we reconstructed the episode, what Tom called retroscripting. And I would add my voice after the fact, after they had assembled something which left room for my responses. Because pretty much for the first few years, I just said, and that makes you feel, or even something like, uh-huh. <sighs> but um, and that, then things changed dramatically when some guy at HBO said, you're allowed to be funny too, which was so liberated. <laughs> okay. um, it's amazing. Uh, you know, all those years I watched that show and then again revisited some episodes, the interactions seem like classic funny man, straight man talk. The patients slash comedians deliver their stuff. You react in this, um, you know, low-key way that just is, is the perfect foil for them, but I had no idea you were you were cutting that in later. Oh yeah. I, sometimes I wasn't even you know I would I wasn't even in the same state. I was talking to Gary Shandling in in Los Angeles, and I was in my home in Newton, uh, having a cup of coffee. <sighs> they, and they were just delivering their material to a microphone and nobody, uh, you know, no audience. Yeah. yeah. Wow. You know, I, I traveled out if I really wanted to meet somebody for the first time, um, and I did that. And I also met Shandling at a at a um, in Aspen at a comedy festival, I gave him a joke that one night, and he said, I owe you. Um, and I also did his show, the Larry Sanders show, which was fun. Oh, yeah, it was a wonderful show. One of the greats, one of the great sitcoms. Yeah. You're reminding me just of how many uh, of the very best comedians of our times were on Dr. Katz. Ridiculous. I know, and, yeah. and, and uh, some of them were people who were truly unknown to me at the time. I just want to add one thing to this part of the story because the the stuff where I was just laughing ridiculously hard 
were the exchanges I had with John Benjamin, who portrayed my son oh. then. Well, yes. Well, with Laura Silverman, who was ex- extremely funny as my receptionist, and both of them were able to manipulate me beautifully. Uh, yeah, so so why don't we play a clip, because uh, this is a s- essential part of the show, of you and John Benjamin, who's playing your son, Ben, Dr. Katz's 24-year-old stay-at-home son, uh, who's kind of, um, well, he, he hasn't figured out his career direction yet. But he's so full of ideas <laughs> and, and life and such a loving kid. Yeah, so let's hear a clip of exactly that happening. This is where um, you have encouraged him to investigate the job market. What do you think about this, though, Dad? What do you think if uh, if I told you that I had a an itching to drive the big rigs? Hmm? Would that bug you at all? You're talking about driving a tractor trailer? Well, you know, I saw a commercial last night, and I'll, I'll tell you, to be honest with you, yeah. those guys looked happy, well-fed, and satisfied with their lives. Do you think you could handle driving uh, an 18-wheeler cross-country? Well, I mean, that's the uh, that's why you go to the school. You learn how to drive long distances. Yeah, um, but what they don't teach you is how to control your bladder. But you go in the back behind the seat in a jar. Uh, what about something else, like, um, for instance, uh, logging? Does that strike a chord with you? No. That's a pun. What about bartending college, Dad? What about that? Well, actually, you know, that, of all the ideas you've suggested, is the third. That's true. I have to say that. Hey, do you remember when I used to put on a pair of your pants, and then I'd pull them up over my head, and I used to run around the house and bump into everything, knock stuff over? Yeah, I remember, Ben. Yeah. Is there a job for that? A clip there from uh, Dr. Katz, professional therapist from uh, 1995, with my guest Jonathan Katz as Dr. Katz, uh, and his quote-unquote son, played by uh, John Benjamin, uh, talking there about uh, career directions. Um, but let's talk about you and, and John Benjamin, because those were improvised, right? Yes, and the whole show began with, with an outline. Tom Snyder and I would create an outline, and then we'd try to reduce it by 50%. Like, let's say the idea for a show was making a trip to San Francisco, and then we would do that by 50%. percent we making a trip to uh, Idaho. And then then it would end up being, let's leave the house. Just go out. Let's go outside. <laughs> That's what the episode would be about. <laughs> but we worked from this outline. And then from the outline, the actors, the regulars, who are Laura Silverman, John Benjamin, me, Tom Center was always there, and our, the first editor, Lauren Bouchard, who now produces Bob's Burgers, um, we would all sit in a room and go through the script and we would try to find what we wanted and Tom would be listening to make sure that he got what he needed in a particular scene and he was very talented at that it's very different than editing anything else editing animation um, even though we didn't get to the animation until we signed off on the audio so we'd all listen to the script I'm trying to think of what one of my favorites was called Bystander Ben. It had to do with Ben being an eyewitness to a crime. Oh, I have a vague memory of that one. And he thinks that he has a new field now as a bystander. <laughs> and, you know, he was questioned by the by the police, and what he said was, I heard as many as three and, and as few as no shots. <laughs> but that, that happened to be a, one of the few written lines that actually survived. Most lines were improvised. 
Let's hear another example of you two just going back and forth. Um, this is a, a conversation you had in one of the early episodes about fitness. He was always getting on my cases to get in shape, and, and I was getting on his case to get in shape. And there was a, a lot of episodes, because Dr. Katz divorced Ben's mom, a lot of episodes were about me dating. Yes. And how difficult it was for Ben to imagine me with another woman because he thought I was being unfaithful to my mother, who's, to his mother, whose name he couldn't remember. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's hear this clip of, of you two going on about fitness. But you can cut your losses. There are certain things you can do now. That's why, why I've decided to exercise. And well, I've never exercised. I mean, I, well, I don't like the looks of it. You're young still, you know. Right, but, you know, I'm... I'm I'm bigger than you, you know. I mean, in a in a, in a fat way, I'm a bigger man than yeah, you, well, and you're also, not. Uh, well, that's, 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 you're not that big. You don't. You actually look fit. Yeah, but you're also an athlete, Ben. I mean, what well, did you, what did you win that that at camp? That you won that buoyancy thing there. That was. You know what I'm talking about, Camp Yomi? Yes, uh, yes, it was a uh, first, I mean, first place in, in floating. Right. So in the pool. Uh, it was a it was a joke, though. It was a it was a joke award. They were making fun of me. Well, but still, you you are. But I kept it. You are the athlete in the family. I mean, a lot of a lot of that. A lot of what you a see is time. big, is 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 musculature, and also the, you have some baby fat on you still. And what's well, not baby fat? You will shed that as as you get older. Oh, damn, twenty four years old. Well, yeah. look, you know, you you could get on this program with me. You could you could join, and all you'd have to do is get up off the couch. I've lost you already, huh? I just fell asleep for a second. I'm sorry. You have to get up off the couch. Yeah. And say, I, Benjamin Daniel Katz, love myself and will treat my body with the respect that it deserves every day the rest of my life. Can you do that? I can't. Um, you know, I can't push myself like that. I mean, I do love me. I'm just asking you to take a vow. I'm not asking you to do any exercise. Oh, okay. Would we'll you do, do that, that for sure. me? Sure. I... Would you stand up and say that? Well, n well, you know, Dad. Please, Ben. No, well, don't, don't press me, Dad. Don't press like that. Well, I... Don't press on me. You're all over me. <laughs> You're a shapely man yourself, Dad, in a way. I mean, you're a little heavy around the hip area. You've, you've... I'm built to bear children. So uh, another clip from Dr. Katz, professional therapist from 1995, uh, featuring uh, Jonathan Katz, who I'm talking to today on the 7th Avenue Project, uh, and H. John Benjamin playing his son, Ben. Again, you guys were improvising. Uh, and what really was... So lovable about those exchanges for me uh, was a hearing the spontaneity of it, even hearing you guys like you know occasionally laugh, you know when you surprise each other, and the gentleness of it, you know, um, it was a different kind of humor than. Yeah, it really was a sweet show. Yeah, it was a really sweet show. There was one where you guys said, "He said, I love you, Dad." And you said, "I love you, Ben." I remember that one. And it came off as so real. Did you guys have, I mean, did you ever feel like, did you get into that role of father-son? No. <laughs> no. Not to the point, not to the point of <laughs> liking each other. <laughs> he, he, by the way, you're not old enough to be his father either, so it, 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 no. it, it seemed totally believable in the show, though. You sounded right. like you could be father and son. We got into that role so quickly and so naturally once we were on mic and... You know, before I did Dr. Katz, I did stand-up for 15 years, and I did pretty much the same act verbatim every night. 
uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but but the, working with John Benjamin was also so liberating because he didn't do jokes. He is an improvisational actor who who just any direction I thought I was heading, and he would have a better idea. <laughs> Well, you guys played off each other, you know, really well. I mean, I think your style played with his perfectly. Um, and again, he's another person who I kind of discovered through your show. I didn't know anything about him. And he's he's gone on to do a lot of great things. Oh, yeah. You know, he's done a lot of voicing uh, for animated shows like Archer, of course, and Bob's Burgers. And uh, he had a really good show um, a year or two ago on Comedy Central, H. John Be- or John Benjamin Has a Van. Oh, a Van. That was great. And they canceled it or something? Yeah. Uh, I don't I have no idea why it was such a good show. Was and he he did it live for about a year. I appeared as a guest on that. Uh, John Benjamin has a tour. He called it. <laughs> um, yeah, and he also was the star of a show called Home Movies, a wonderful show on originally on UPN and then Adult Swim. And were you involved with that? I played. There was a character named Melissa, and I played her dad. <laughs> And Melissa was my assistant, who had never used, ever wanted to be an actress or ever recorded her voice. And she just showed up one day at the studio with me. And they needed a voice of a young woman, so she, they put her on tape and she got the part. Uh, so that kind of um, big break does happen yeah. to people. Wow. You know how Lana Turner got discovered? <laughs> Wasn't it like the Brown Derby or something? No, it was a, it was a luncheonette called Schwab's. Oh, yeah. Los Angeles. She was wearing a very tight sweater, and she was this incredibly beautiful woman. And in Newton, Massachusetts, where I live, there's a um, a financial inv- advisor called Schwab's Charles Schwab. Oh yeah, yeah, Chuck Schwab. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm trying to. F- oh, is he national? Oh, totally. Yeah, and I'm trying to find some beautiful blonde woman to p- to be on film, <laughs> trying to get discovered there. Is there a there there? It's just, a, just I mean, it's such a long shot that anybody anybody will appreciate it. But that's kind of what I invest invest my time in that kind of comedy, the kind of conceptual comedy that would be very hard to pull off. Yeah, but you've 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 managed to you know along with Doctor Katz, you've you've done a number of uh, projects that have come off. You know, I heard you talking uh, on Mark Maron's podcast. I, I mentioned that earlier. And you talked about a project that you had done with Tom Snyder, a show. Was it called Giving Some Giving Harry the Business? Giving Harry the Business. It had an incredible cast. Uh, you, John Benjamin, um, uh, Stephen Wright, right? Yep. Oh, an actress named Lauren Dabrowski, who is who died much too young. Oh, and and someone else who I who I recognized. Um, someone else great. Um, I think there was at least one other comedy great, and and but you guys. You guys took it all the way through the meeting stage with Steven Spielberg and right and uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Jeffrey Katzenberg and 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 it was it was approved, but you walked. Well, he said to me, um, Jonathan, are you going to be the guy responsible every week for this being funny? And I said, Well, you know, animation is so tricky, and there are so many people involved. And he said, Look, if you're going to get it to all touchy feely about it, forget it. Seriously. You can't show any weakness, right? Or second guessing. You know, he doesn't have time to really consider how you feel about it. He only has time to hear the word yes. I'd be delighted. Wow. So that's how it all sort of dissolved? Yeah. And it was such a wonderful project. A beautiful, the animation was beautiful. The music was beautiful. Sung by 
uh, written by Tom, performed by a woman named Jonathan Brooke. I'm trying to think of who the other person was that you may have known of. But David Cross, did you know him? Oh, yeah, Dave Cross, yeah. Dave Cross and John Benjamin are very funny together because they just like to annoy each other. <laughs> I'm sure they're good at it. Yeah. Um, so when you have a beautiful idea like that and you take it all the way, you had a couple, you had a pilot episode or two. Right. Uh, and, and then, you know, something goes wrong in a meeting. You show too much self-reflection. Uh, note to anybody pitching anything, never show any doubt, wavering, uh, ambiguity, right? Um, so, so when something like that happens, I mean, don't you just shop it elsewhere? Well, I, I at the time had a deal with DreamWorks. Like, oh, an overall deal, so they were the only game in town. Oh, uh, and so that just but, sort of ends it. Yeah, but that's not even my worst pitch. My worst pitch was with DreamWorks movies. I had written a movie, and I was trying to just tell them the the beats of the film. And I'm pitching to this husband and wife team there. And then I made the mistake of using the phrase, and then as the movie winds down, and she said, don't you mean bills to a peak? And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> Jonathan, does that, is that true? Is that a true story? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that moment sort of killed it? You using kind of a wrong idea of a denouement as, as opposed to a climax? Yeah, and also they couldn't accept the idea that two men could actually be in love. Because oh. it was about, the, you know, it was, the idea was about these two guys decided to pretend to be gay just to get away from their wives. And in my version, they ended up falling in love. Many funny things happened along the way, but they couldn't. They weren't ready to make a movie about two men being in love. Wow, when was this? Uh, in the 90s. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you had, at that time, you had movies like La Cage aux Folles. Yeah. I mean, you had movies that had, that had gay material that wasn't intolerant or homophobic, right? So right. Hollywood is so slow to catch it up. It is. Wow. What do you think of the... Um, uh, do you have any strong thoughts on the... Um, on the interview and its fate uh, with Sony Pictures. Well, I think they made a, they made a mistake. The the writers of that movie, because I I saw the first draft, which actually was about a very ineffectual executive CEO of a company in uh, North Dakota. No, I'm kidding. I have no. <laughs> uh, I think what what um, and my sister in law made this point was that. It was stupid to write a movie about a guy who is a ruthless leader with nuclear weapons. I know that it sounds cowardly, but it's also, you know, it might have been, uh, you want to be provocative, but you don't want to be provocative to the point where people get hurt. Yeah, but uh, man, you wonder how much effect this is going to have on, again, that, that industry we were just talking about that's already conservative, that's already playing it safe, avoiding concepts that have any risk involved with them, you know? Well, as an audiophile, I have so much loyalty to, to Sony. You know, Howard Stern calls himself the king of all media. Yes. Right now in my office, I have a two mini-disc players and recorders. I have a PreSonus audio digital interface. I have a cassette recorder, a DAT machine, a DVD player. I am the king of all media. Uh, 
I, I confer the title oh. upon you, yes. Oh, wait, you know what else I have? You're not going to believe this. Uh, do you use Audible.com? I actually never have. Oh, because when they first started, and maybe they started in the early 90s or the late 80s, if you joined up, they sent you something called the Otis. Their own device, their own listening yeah, device? like a little MP3 player. Uh-huh. And I found mine the other day, and it still works. Oh, wow. Like 25 years later. Oh, man. And I know you have, like, old reel-to-reel uh, yeah. tape. Yeah, I have it most... I have moments of my life... So I started recording when I was about seven. What were you recording? My cousins and I would record things from Mad Magazine. We would record the top 100 songs of the year, but without commenting. Just, let's, you know, we record the radio, almost. Yeah, yeah. My dad uh, was completely into that, too. Um, he had a lot of different kinds of reel-to-reel systems. He had a Sony, I think, quarter-inch reel-to-reel that he did use to record stuff off the radio and then play it back. Uh, you know, he was he was essentially pirating content yeah. back in the day when it was hard. You know what bothers me about your dad? <laughs> Is that he left me nothing. <laughs> nothing. Well, he's still alive. Oh, well, then I forgive him. Yeah. I don't know why. Would you talk so bleakly about his prognosis? Oh, but I said he um, he it beat the odds. Be true. Yeah, he beat the odds. Yeah, great. Yeah, my dad uh, had all these little. You know, being a psychologist, I think they were maybe ahead of the game in recording because they would like record their notes, their notes of their their sessions, things great. like that. But he had these little reel to reel, these little portable reel to reel systems. And uh, when I was like five years old, I ran away from home. I was mad at him, uh, and that amounted to me running out into the alley trying to overnight it in the alley. It lasted about maybe 15 minutes or 20 yeah, minutes. Where, where did you grow up? Well, this we, we moved around a lot, but this was in Arizona. And, right. And, no, it wasn't cold, at least. No, it wasn't cold. But, at, uh, you know, uh, 15 or 20 minutes in an alley trying to sleep, um, thinking uh, I'll get back at them. But when I returned, what he did is he sat me down with his one of his little tape recorders and interviewed me about that. So, son, why why did you run away? <laughs> That's so funny. Um, it sounds so much like me as a father. Is that true? My, well, you know, both of my daughters, their entire lives have been recorded, especially my oldest daughter, because she was a, an incredible ham. Now, she now teaches in Philadelphia, has two kids of her own, and so much of her life is on film. Ah, uh, that's great. And a lot of it's just on, on tape. And my daughter Miranda, who's 23... I once did a show for Ira Glass, a, a, a segment on This American Life, and he played one of the songs I had written, which is kind of a romantic ballad. And my daughter, who was nine at the time, sang part of it. And it's really, it's almost worth looking for. I wonder if I could find it for you. Um, segment about childhood. You know, we, we have access to the um, This American Life archives, why don't we play this song that you wrote and sang together with your daughter, Mandy, a romantic ballad called... Love Just Won't Come My Way. Now, when I see a picture hanging on the wall, it just reminds me of what could have been... Same with me, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. And um, I still hope that maybe someday we can get together. Same with me. And make up for lost time. Same with me. And um, thinking of the, the way... That I could have made you stay. 
it's an odd uh, choice of a uh, subject for a song to sing with your nine-year-old daughter. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could. The wheels on the bus go round and round only so many times. You, know? <laughs> you stay, but like, like a bird, bird you have flown. Jonathan Katz singing with his daughter Mandy and uh, talking about that old recording with some guy named Ira Glass from an episode of This American Life that ran uh, back in 2001. I'm talking to Jonathan Katz today about his comedic career and the beloved animated TV series that he co-created and starred in called Dr. Katz, Professional Therapist. The show premiered 20 years ago and... uh, there's going to be a 20th anniversary performance coming up this week at SF Sketchfest, featuring Jonathan, his co-star H. John Benjamin, the series co-creator Tom Snyder, and uh, various comedic guests. I'll give out uh, more information on that later in the show. The show is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and we'll be right back after this. Okay, now let's return to today's interview with the comedian Jonathan Katz. Jonathan, I wanted to play uh, yet another clip from Dr. Katz, um, since we are celebrating its 20th birthday. Um, this is uh, an interaction between uh, Dr. Katz's receptionist, Laura, played by Laura Silverman. Um, she's, uh, of course, Sarah's big sister, right? Yeah. Big sister. Uh, she plays the chilly, surly receptionist, eye-rolling, sarcastic uh, Laura. And... Uh, this is one of your patients coming in, a guy who is a uh, an old friend of yours. Hi, Laura. You're early. I'm always early. That's why I get the worm. What? The worm. The early bird gets the worm. What are you talking about? It's an expression. Oh. It's an expression. You know how sometimes people take the humdrum day-to-day thoughts and words of their lives and try to transform them into the poetry of human speech? You know what I'm talking about? You mean cliches? He must be a lot of fun to work for, I'm guessing. Guess again. He must be a little fun to work for. I'm going to give you one more guess, and then we're going to stop talking to each other. Do you understand? Yes. Good. You're very strict. I like that about you. Thank you. You should be in the other room, and he should be out here answering the phone. Hmm. I've suggested it, but he just never thinks it's a good idea. Well, I'm not part of that camp, because I think you're aces, I think you're the cat's PJs. Really? Oh, yeah. That's weird, because I never really liked you much, but I kind of do now. Yeah? Oh, good. Well, it's, it's good to meet somebody with an agenda. Mr. Mamet? Yes? Are you just blowing smoke up my ass? What do you mean, just? Uh, that was David Mamet playing the patient. They're both so fast. And, and was that improvised? No, that was just two witty people. So it was improvised? Uh, yes. It yes. was. Whoa. You know but that I was one. I to it the other day. I couldn't believe the speed of their wit. Agreed. I, I honestly thought that one was scripted. No. And and so that's David Mamet, a guy, um, I guess you launched his career on that show. Is that right? Yeah, I discovered him. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you guys are old, like, college buddies. Yeah. We went to Goddard College together in Vermont. And you co-wrote House of Games with him? I co-wrote the story on which the movie is based. That's one version. The other version is I got him coffee. <laughs> I'm going to go with version number one for the sake of this conversation. Right. And uh, you know, funny thing is I was doing an interview a couple of weeks ago with a writer who's fascinated by that movie and 
we talked about it a little bit in the interview, but I didn't realize that I would have so soon uh, a chance to ask one of its creators what you were up to with that story of a woman psychiatrist who thinks she's smart and is allowed to think she's really smart by some con men, uh, especially a guy named Mike played by Joe Montaigne, and she's conned partly as a result of her having a lot of faith in her powers of perception as a psychiatrist. What motivated that story? Dave and I used to, and this I guess is in the 60s, um, well, we went to school together in the 60s, and then after college, he said, uh, come join me in Chicago. I have a part for, for you in a, in a theater company. This turned out to be the, the it was a children's theater, and the guy hated me, the director. But David and I used to try to hustle ping pong and pool, and we were kind of fascinated by con artists. And we made the mistake of trying to con guys who were better at us. <laughs> But I had, we had a really good thing going with ping pong because I used to be—I used to know by sight anybody in the country who could compete on the same level as me. You were a champ, right? Yeah, I was. So, but I would pretend that I couldn't play, and I'd let David beat me and win money from me, and then I'd get livid and try to win somebody back <laughs> from somebody who also was in the student union watching the match. We would do this on college campuses in Chicago mostly. And um, not very lucrative, but we also occasionally get enough money to find two young women and take them out to dinner. <laughs> or not, we skip the whole part about dinner. It was, it was kind of an exciting time. We were like pirates of sorts um, on a small scale. This story made its way into your Wikipedia um, entry, and I was like, I read it and I thought, is this made up? Is this just totally made up? It says that um, cats would let Mamet beat him. They would pretend to play for money, and then Mamet would say to a mark, if you want to play me, you have to beat my friend first. To keep the game moderately close, cats would sometimes spot his opponent's 15 points and during every point recall a painful experience from his childhood. Well, that last part is just a joke. Yes, I thought so. But I could. I would spot them 15 points. You would. You were that good. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so so you guys didn't make a ton of money. Did you ever get chased out of town or anything? We came close. The scariest was hustling, trying to hustle pool in Vermont. Because there was a guy who owned a pool hall, and he was just too good. And he didn't really like us. And I think he was uh, later charged with doing some very awful things, criminal things. We came close to getting hurt a few times. So you're playing with fire there. Um, but you guys had this fascination. You even tried hustling people yourselves. And so you, you wrote this, this story. And some people read it as a kind of, um, well, that this psychiatrist, this academic type, this snooty, know-it-all psychiatrist gets her comeuppance from these streetwise guys, you know? Yeah. You know, and, and there was a place in New York where David and I would hang out called the House of Games. Oh, there was? Yeah, a real place on on 72nd Street on the west side, and you could play um, chess there. People bet on everything. They would bet on what time a guy would show up or whether or not a guy could run across the FDR drive without getting hit by a car. Compulsive. Yeah, there's some serious gambles. Yeah. Gambles. Um, But the, the whole part about the shrink 
was I had nothing to do with that part of the story. Ah. Yeah. What was he up to? Do you think? David. Yeah. What did he introduce that element to the story? Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. We, we don't. Um, you guys still friends? We are. We are. We talk, and we never talk about anything of a serious nature. We don't talk about our work. We don't talk about politics. We occasionally talk about our kids. Mm. Or our wives, but usually there's a punchline involved. <laughs> and he speaks in code. Does he, he talk wrote, like one of his one of those guys in his plays? Kinda. I mean, he wrote a play called Cryptogram. Uh, it's about his childhood, but he, you know he he speaks to many people cryptically, including his oldest daughter Willow, who I worked with recently. She's a sing- become a singer songwriter. Um, you guys don't talk politics because I mean, recently he did a sort of uh, I don't know how recently, but sort of a ideological one eighty, right? Denouncing his former self as a brain-dead liberal. I'm still trying to figure out what a 180 means. <laughs> uh, well, I actually, have, I actually have a protractor here. <laughs> it means an about face. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, I wonder, does he think of you then? I mean, I don't really, I don't know your politics, but I'm going to guess you might be what he would call a brain-dead liberal, right? Uh, more of a bleeding-heart liberal. You're a bleeding-heart liberal, right? Yeah. But you don't get into that with him. No, I discussed that with my cardiologist. <laughs> Good choice. Um, I would love to uh, play an, yet another uh, clip from Dr. Katz, which... Oh, well, can I suggest a clip that you look for? Yeah. When Ben discovers that his mother is coming for Thanksgiving, and I'm trying to explain the relationship of her and me to him, and he, his, he comes up with the notion that, wait a second, Dad... She's the fruit of my loins. Um, so I had to explain that part to him, and then he decides to make Thanksgiving dinner for everybody. It doesn't go well. And I'd like to remind you listeners that this is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and today I am joined by the comedian Jonathan Katz, the co-creator and the star of the classic animated TV series Dr. Katz Professional Therapist, whose 20th anniversary is being celebrated uh, this week at SF Sketchfest in San Francisco. We're talking about the show and uh, other aspects of Jonathan's career. So, Jonathan, you and I were talking uh, a moment ago about uh, an episode you were really fond of from Dr. Katz that involved a Thanksgiving dinner that your son, Ben, has planned on cooking. And uh, your ex-wife, that is Dr. Katz's ex-wife, played by Carrie Fisher, is coming to dinner. And it's a pretty awkward arrangement uh, and uh, you wanted to hear a couple of clips from that, and I do too. So in this first one we're going to play, Ben, the shiftless, lovable but shiftless stay-at-home son, uh, has been hitting on uh, Dr. Katz's receptionist, Laura, for quite some time. Laura has no interest in him or any other human being in the show. But Carrie Fisher has come over, uh, Ben's mom, and is asking about his quote-unquote relationship with Laura. And Ben has to make some things up. So that's what we're going to hear first. So, Ben, sweetie, how long have you and Laura been together? Laura and I? Yeah. Laura and I? Yeah, I mean... Well, well, it's been been some time now. (laughs) Yeah, like... uh, Because you you guys are so cute together. Did you just meet through your father because she's working for you or the other way around? I'll tell you, it happened so quickly. I barely remember the details. So... You asked her out, or where did you go? I mean, I love these kind of stories. I, we just immediately made love. 
Uh, and, um, well, I don't. No, I mean, it was just it happened very fast. It was, you know, sort of a whirlwind. Still is. You guys go out a lot, or? There's every chance we get. I, I would, really? We, do, like, we spend a lot of time together. We do all the typical things that most people in relationships do. We would Like? Tandem bikes in the park. Um, we, uh, I took her once to the... Uh, Where is she, by the way? She she's probably in the in the kitchen doing uh, something cute. She has the it's funny when she wakes up in the morning the cutest little uh, face. She's like a cat. Hi, Laura. Hey. Hi. What were you? Hey, what were Laura. You doing Why are you touching me? Oh, well, Ben was just telling us how you two got together. No, yeah, mommy. It's not Laura. Laura wouldn't. Oh, he no? was just telling us about no, no. about how you guys met. No, and mom, you... mom, 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 you... sing the old song. No, why should you be embarrassed? He was just saying no, how mom, you guys no, were. Mom, mom. Who guys? I, you know, we should uh, really celebrate this great I holiday. understand you guys like to picnic and stuff. You know? <laughs> Let's eat. You know, Let's my mother eat. wants to know about it, you know. Her you know, this is silly. We should interest. all split up. A clip uh, from Dr. Katz, professional therapist. That's from season five, so that would be getting near the end of the run there. Ben is completely making up a story about being involved with Laura, and then Laura shows up and kind of spoils things. And the other thing, uh, let me see if I can set this up. So, you know, Ben really behaves almost heroically by insisting on making dinner. <laughs> and it appears that he started a small fire in the kitchen, but he's trying to keep everybody uh, out of there and sort of focus on other things. And I think that would be worth sharing with your listeners, that scene. So, uh, so yeah, let's hear this part. Now, we're going to start at a point where the guests, you, Laura, and your ex-wife, I don't even know what her name is. Roz. Roz, good name, played by Carrie Fisher, and uh, Laura's played by Laura Silverman, are all chatting in the living room while Ben, with his apron, is making Thanksgiving dinner. Okay, so let's hear that. Where did you where did you get that blouse? That's very cute. Oh really? You like it? Very much. And it's very becoming on you. Wow, I just got it at the thrift store. Wow, that's You just have to have an eye and then you can really find the best. It's very cute. Very cute. Thank you. Ow! Oh God! Ben, what's wrong? Nothing! It's going okay in here. Yeah, I got it. They're just talking girl talk. Oh, I love it. Is that your color hair? Because I love that. I would... Well, it's mine now. Yeah. What? What do you? Ooh, what? Uh, where do you go? Because I would love to get. The I do color. It myself. You do? What do you yeah. use? Hey, by the way, I don't exist. I could. Uh, I could do yours. It's easy. Fire in the hole. Um. Oh my God! It's all right. Go ahead. Everything is okay in here. That's yeah, good here too. Jesus Christ! Holy shit! Did you say dinner's being served? What the fuck? Everything's alright! Oh my god! Ben is so dramatic when he cooks. Just let us know when dinner's ready! <laughs> uh, and now we are seeing a completely charred turkey in the sink. And he ends up making um, frozen dinner. Ready? <laughs> You know, I still remember that night so clearly because we went out to L.A., uh, me and Tom Snyder and John Benjamin, because I wanted to meet Carrie Fisher. I'd been a fan of hers. Oh, yeah. Now, that performance that we just heard, you guys were all together in yeah. a studio? We were. I was wearing headphones, 
and she thought it looked like her ex-husband, Paul Simon, which would make her happy. <laughs> um, uh, John Benjamin, you know, sort of at a distance from the mic, you know, as though he's in the kitchen. Again, right. uh, improv? Yes. Um, your likeness to Paul Simon, uh, Carrie Fisher's ex, reminds me that you, you had another side um, that occasionally surfaced in Dr. Katz in the show, which is your musical side. As I understand it, you were really a musician before you were a comedian. Yeah. Uh, and occasionally the two came together, the comedic and the, the musical in the show. And I have a, I have a clip I'd, I'd like to play. Again, uh, from Dr. Katz, uh, the animated sitcom that ran in the mid-'90s, whose uh, 20th anniversary is being celebrated this year at SF Sketchfest, and we'll give out uh, details of that in just a bit. Uh, but um, this clip is uh, Dr. Katz giving a music lesson uh, he is a folk singer himself. Uh, music lesson to his friend Julie, played by uh, Julianne Shapiro. She'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. She'll be coming. Oh, don't try to play it. Okay. Just watch what I'm doing. Okay. She'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. Now go. Just try that. No. She'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. She'll be coming round the mountains. She'll be coming round the mountains. And this is the way the jazzy guys would do it. She'll be coming round the mountains when she when she comes around them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She'll come around the mountains. So that's you, uh, demonstrating your versatility on guitar and voice. You know, I, I can play, um, I can't play the guitar well anymore, but I, I'm learning how to play lap steel. I have two lap steel guitars. There are guys who play it really well, like um, Ben Harper. Right. Such a guy. Yeah. Um, David Lindley plays it beautifully, Ryan Cooter. Right. Like the, it's not unlike the dobro. You strum it with one hand, and you play the chords with a slide. A bit like putting a dobro in your lap. Right. And uh, you're doing all that bending of notes with the slide. Yeah. Yeah, so you said you, you, you have a hard time with guitar these days. Yeah, it has to do with MS. Just I don't, I don't have the dexterity in my left hand that I need to play the guitar well. Uh, you were diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis at some point during the uh, Dr. Katz um, yeah, years. In fact, I remember the episode. Well, no, that's not. Uh, that was. I remember the episode during which my father died, because oh, wow. it was such an emotional time, and I was laughing and crying almost constantly. Oh boy! That was the episode called "Big Fat Slug" with Carolyn Ray. But you were diagnosed with with MS in 1997, but it was sort of asymptomatic for many years. But I've read this, uh, Jonathan, that you for a while felt that you know you're. Your showbiz career depended on your not revealing the fact that you had it. True. And you didn't tell people. Yeah. Yeah, because, um, you know, even though the kind of obligated, whoever you're working for, to accommodate you, they may fire you. Or as my lawyer at the time put it, in Hollywood, you're not allowed to be old or sick. So I moved back to Boston where both things are encouraged. <laughs> Do you think that advice was, was true, though, um, that it was, like, a risky thing to, to reveal that you had an illness like that? I think 
it is. I mean, I, I know people li- living in L.A. who are writers on shows who also have MS and they're afraid about coming out of the closet, so to speak. Uh, it's, that's sad. I mean, yeah. really sad. But w- at what point did you say, uh, F it, you know, I'm going to reveal this fact? That was disgusting. F it. <laughs> um, uh, you know what's the word I really hate is frickin'. <laughs> frickin'. <laughs> or- Good enough reason not to do anything but on HBO. Do you remember uh, there was an episode of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm where um, Jeff Garland and I think Larry are yelling at each other, freak you, no, freak you. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen that. (laughs) But as far as like um, telling the world, uh, I have multiple sclerosis. Deal with it, if if that's what you did. Um, I was going to say me too. (laughs) You were talking about me. Um, yeah, that happened in around 2000. No, actually it happened, well, I came back from L.A. because of a particularly bad exacerbation. I was producing a show there for Warner Brothers called Raising Dad, which starred Bob Saget and Kat Dennings and an actress named Brie Larson, who's really wonderful, became a wonderful film actress. Um, Jerry Adler, who's in everything. So I came back after after a particularly bad exacerbation, and I landed in Boston, went directly to my neurologist's office, and saw on the TV that the World Trade Towers had been hit. And that played into your decision, you're saying? No, the, the World Trade Towers is a total coincidence. Oh, I see. It had nothing to do with my decision. It had to do with my health, just protecting my health. And you're doing you're doing good now, though? I'm doing, you know, I have a stable, pretty stable version of MS. Everybody has their own version. Yeah, there's the progressive kind. Uh, I had a good friend. I've had several good friends have it, you know. Um, and, right. and yeah, it, it, it does vary. Right. Um, you're able to get about on stage with a cane, is that right? Cane, and I get around larger spaces with the help of a scooter, which, believe it or not, is so much fun. Is it? People don't realize that. I once bumped into Kevin Nealon in an airport. I was on a scooter, and he said, I've never seen you in such a good mood. Uh, and he was serious? He hadn't seen you in yeah. such a good mood? Really? Yeah, I mean, I really do. like. It's like kind of like being in a video game, driving around on a scooter in a busy airport. It must be interesting for you, um, you know, the, the kinds of um, assumptions people make. Like, you know, they don't, people who don't know you uh, and see you on the scooter and maybe start assuming things about you, either being really charitable, you know, when they talk to you? I mean, what sorts of reactions do you get? Well, the, my least favorite is, how are you? Mm-hmm. But I was in an elevator maybe six months ago in a great mood. I was on my way to see a dermatologist, and some guy gets in the elevator and says, and I said to him, how are you? And he said, well, I'm in a hospital, so that should tell you something. Mm. And then he said, at least I'm not on a scooter like you. And then I meant to say, fuck you. But the door closed too fast, the elevator. <laughs> so I was in such a good mood. So that's the thing that's not, that people can't really see. Huh, they just assume that it's... That they look, they, they, some people avert my eyes. Sometimes it's because my eyes are a couple of feet lower than their eyes. <laughs> and they avoid eye contact? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I have friends who are in wheelchairs and stuff, and, and you know, they have to deal with these projections. Um, one friend who's a really smart guy, a writer, disabled, um, 
and you know the thought some people have is that he's mentally disabled and so they treat him initially like a child or someone who needs to be spoken to in simple language um do you ever get that no good <laughs> i'm but glad I do, see, I do see a pediatric ophthalmologist he's a neuro ophthalmologist cuz my eyes are really fucked up as a result of ms and because he mostly sees kids he'll hold something in front of him and go look 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 look, look. but he's very good <laughs> well Jonathan, i had, i've taken up um even more time of yours than i begged well, for pleasure i really i really enjoyed this i thought maybe i'd uh do something corny to end this by saying well jonathan you know what that music means it is certainly corny i'm gonna be playing the dr Katz theme no i know i get it <laughs> the real fans will like that i know but i think i personally think you can do better okay okay no, but no 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 coach I'm, me I'm, i think that's a, that's a good idea Jonathan Katz will be joined by H. John Benjamin, Tom Snyder, Ron Funches, Andy Kindler, and others for a 20th anniversary performance of Dr. Katz, professional therapist, at Marines Memorial Theater in San Francisco this coming Saturday, January 24th. It is part of SF Sketchfest, and you can find out more at their website, sfsketchfest.com. You can find out more about this radio show at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, where you can listen to past shows. I'm Robert Polly, and I'll be back with a new show next week. So long until then. <laughs>